Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Um, not very often do I get to get someone on this show that has more than just a skill, someone that has a mindset that could renovate your life or it could revolutionize your life. So whichever one you want to take with this, I have with me Noah Healy. Noah Healy, please explain to the audience, audience who you are, why you are here today, and a fun fact from your childhood. Um, well, so yeah, Noah Healy, um, I'm a born and raised Charles Villian, uh, that is a recreational mathematician interested in computational mathematics. Uh, I have gained professional employment, uh, developing algorithms and systems for, you know, dot-com startups. And also I'm a market design consultant, and I'm currently pursuing a patent on a completely new kind of financial market, um, essentially the first brand new financial market since the Renaissance. Whoa, whoa. Now, let's dive into something. You said Charlottesville, and to the audience, Charlottesville is a big place for me. I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, originally. West Virginia Commonplace, that's the name of the podcast because that's where I live now, but... Growing up in Virginia, there's two universities we talk about. We talk about James Madison sometimes, but University of Virginia, Virginia Tech. Noah Healy has um, some accolades there outside of actually even stepping foot there. Uh, you were accepted into a prestigious program at UVA at the age of 15, correct? Um, yeah. So the local school systems have, uh, have a policy that if you complete a course of study, then they will sign you up in the continuing education and and send you over to UVA to continue your schooling. Um, and because of my pioneering several advanced mathematics uh, uh, enrichment programs that uh, the local school system was trying out, uh, by my junior year, I was, I had finished, uh, the AP calculus test. And so I went over to, uh, to UVA for third semester calculus, uh, took differential equations in the e-school, um, and also took, uh, classes on computer programming. Wow. And you said calculus at 15? Uh, yeah. So the, there was a, a, a program which has been completely normalized now uh, to skip over the seventh grade pre-algebra class and start algebra in seventh grade that I was one of three students to, to pilot that program. It's now a standard practice. But then um, between my freshman and sophomore years of high school, uh, I was fortunate enough there were a cluster of children of people from the mathematics department in my high school, uh, and their fathers basically all wanted them to, to take pre-calculus in summer school and sort of bump up a year. And it was the same year that I would have been qualified for, for free calculus. So an accelerated pre-calc summer school class was available in only one year, which is the only year I needed it to be there. Um, and so I was able to jump into that <laughs> class um, with some other students whose, whose 
UVA professor dads were looking to get them sort of bumped one rung up the math ladder. And so I was able to sort of draft and bump two rungs up the math ladder. Okay. So that's a lot of pressure there. So you go on, you graduate from high school, but you get admitted into University of Virginia's nuclear engineering program. You were the, actually, you have a distinction. You were the last person admitted. Um, how did that come about? And what does it feel like now knowing that you were the last person that was admitted? Well, so the the program was actually closed down for undergraduates the year before I became a full-time undergrad student at UVA. Um, and I was admitted into their Rodman program, which is sort of their engineering honors program, sister to their Eccles program. And the, the Eccles program has this kind of unique thing uh, called the Eccles degree, where um, Eccles students can simply take 120 credit hours of classes and then graduate as, as a student of the university, no major declared, um, and they can take classes with no major requirements. So um, they can take graduate classes, they can, they can, you know, skip requirements and so on if they want to. The Rodmans can also kind of skip out on requirements, but no such sort of potpourri degree exists within uh, 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 the engineering department, at least formally. But my advisor basically thought I was smart and just figured I could do whatever I felt like. So I got what I sort of call the mad scientist degree. It's an engineering science degree, but um, the <laughs> my electives, uh, my science electives were genetics and relativity. My lab electives were uh, robotics and radiation detection. Um, and my thesis was on... Uh, uh, techniques for extracting uh, models from, uh, in nuclear engineering, they're called codes, basically computer simulations. So extracting mathematical models from computer simulations, um, specifically a computer simulation that the lone student of the nuclear engineering department, a PhD candidate was working on of something called an energy amplifier, which is this kind of nuclear reactor that we've never actually built one of. Um, my, my thesis advisor was consequently in the nuclear engineering department and he had uh, some grant money r rattling around and asked me if I'd like to take a year of graduate school, if you know, he would pay for it. And I said, sure, I will. I'll stay in school. I don't really know how to do anything else. Um, so <laughs> uh, I was admitted to the nuclear engineering department, which was closing as a graduate student on the understanding that it was closing and it would all be over in a year, sort of no matter what happened. Um, and uh, and I was fine with that. I got to take some more math classes and uh, and then got out to sort of face the real world. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, I'm kind of starstruck. Like that's a lot to take one. So let me uh, ask you some personal questions real quick In dealing with all this stuff, like the pressure, what was the pressure like when you, once you started uh, getting deeper into um, like, I guess the best term I could use is like with nuclear engineering, um, 
I guess like you got deeper into scientific method. Is that the terminology the best way to use that? Like when you got more in depth with all the skill sets that you've acquired up until this point, like how did that pressure build on you to figure out what you wanted to do after this year of school? Um, I, uh, I sort of take problems as they come. Um, and, and mostly I get through things through, I would describe it as sheer luck. Um, so I never really <laughs> had a plan for that. Um, I, I kind of, I should plan more. I find that, that planning almost always works for me, but then sort of my life kind of works out in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think the real key is expectations and my, since, since what I like doing is, is thinking about things, that's a, that's a very low cost, uh, you know, need set to actually need to, to, to validate or, or, you know, satisfy. Um, so I, I wound up taking, uh, nuclear engineering classes in the first place because, uh, there was a professor that I liked who was a good teacher. I continued with nuclear engineering because, um, the, there was an interesting problem presented in that class that I was able to come up with a creative solution to, which led then to my thesis and my thesis advisor. Um, and then I continued on there because I impressed him and, and was just able to continue. Uh, once I got out, I sort of had a major career change. If, if you would call what I was doing so far a career, uh, into programming computers. Um, but that was a result of the CTO of a local tech firm was a member of the games club at UVA that I was a president of. Um, and so basically I'd, I'd been, you know, beating him in strategy games for, for several years at that point. And they, they were hiring and he's like, you're smart. We're hiring come on down and, you know, have an interview. Um, and that, you know, they folded in a year. Uh, it turned out they were overspending on the wrong things, but I'd made friends there. Most of those guys got a job at a different company and then so did I. Um, and, uh, and so I've been kind of bouncing around these relationships, um, here in town for the last 20 years or so. Okay. Smart man, smart moves. Keep you going. Now, the global economy. Um, what would happen in your thought pattern to make you want to upgrade the methods of the global uh, economy? Well, again, that's something of an accident. So, um, about, 10 years ago, I was working for a company and I had effectively finished the job for which I was hired. Um, and the company had no career prospects for anybody. That was corporate policy was that, uh, no one ever got promoted or, or changed or really much of anything. You, you sort of stayed in your slot and that was kind of that. Um, I could have moved sideways, but I could have moved sideways in, a, in an environment where I could never move up. So that was not 
particularly attractive. Um, so I had money in the bank. I decided to leave. Um, I, I'd been thinking about, you know, computational math at that point for around a decade. And I wanted to see if I could take some time for myself and just think about these subjects. So I did some traveling, visited some family, uh, but also took some time, uh, and I was working on a communication theory problem and I came up with this game theoretic approach to the problem of finding consensus among people who are connected through a network or entities that are connected through a network. And I was talking this over with a, a friend and neighbor and, uh, and he asked if you could break the stock market with it. And I said, no, you can't because you can't pay enough money to buy that information off the network. Like the stock market's already doing that. And I was, as I was walking home, it occurred to me that since the, since the market was paying for that information, in theory, a marketplace could use this kind of an approach. And just as, as a lark, as this thing that was maybe possible and clearly interesting to think about, I decided to see if I could solve that problem. Um, so about six months later, it turns out that I could, I had solved the problem. Uh, and then when I started doing the analysis of the solution to see how it compared with existing systems and, and so on. That's when I figured out that it was actually vastly superior um, in terms of how much work it would take to actually execute it, how much cost it would impose on a society that was using it. Um, and that, you know, suddenly I, I went from kind of wandering through life, you know, looking at pretty things and picking some of them up and looking at them to, to you know, having a purpose. Like, I can upgrade the, the global economy. If you can, there's, there's sort of definitionally nothing more economically valuable than doing that. And so, so I got to do it. Okay. And that's where this amazing thing that you brought to my attention Coordinated discovery markets come in, comes into play, correct? Uh, yes, yes, that's that's the uh, that's the idea, basically. All right. So, in a nutshell, um, because let me tell the C audience, um, Noah is very very concise. He was able to provide me with a diagram that I'm able to look at. I can just you know literally slide around and, and look at. Um, I'm going to have Noah explain to the audience. And when I say explain, I mean, he's, the, the way he, even with his intellect, one thing I do like about him that I've known, noticed thus far is that he's very down to earth. So I'm going to pass it back over to Noah. Noah, I want you to explain to us uh, the coordinated discovery market, uh, how it can affect this person, that person, and another person and explain um just basically a roundabout way how it can work and how it can work for farmers or whoever. So the the core of marketplaces is around price discovery. So there's a there's a price at which 
the amount of stuff that people want to make and the amount of stuff that people want to use is the same amount of stuff. Um, and we see this in command control economies where they try to set prices and they get it wrong. And when they get it wrong on the low side, not enough stuff gets made and there's shortages. And when they get it wrong to the high side, too much stuff gets made and there's, you know, waste and rot and so on. Um, so, so supply and demand, but more advanced. Yeah. Well, so supply and demand are, are real. The, those are things that happen, but the, they can become deranged right. from one another. Um, if this, this sort of mediating price mechanism gets, gets messed with. So what you need is this way for the people who are on the supply side and the people on the demand side to negotiate with each other. What the existing markets do is they do that based on one-on-one interactions. So you're making, you're making stuff, I'm buying stuff, we see if we can come to an agreement. Maybe we can't. In that case, I go try to find somebody else that's making stuff and try to make an agreement with them. The trick and the problem with that in existing marketplaces is that third parties are actually much better at making deals than sort of edge users are. And so what happens is people with deep pockets, lots of resources, go out and just make lots and lots of deals, and they're better at it. So they wind up making deals with each of us independently, and then you know, sort of smoothing together on the back end. And the reason it's impractical for us to actually get face-to-face is because in a commodity situation, there are tens of thousands of farmers. So I would have to have every single one of them, relationships with all of them, to just operate my bakery. I, you know, I need to, I need to actually run my business. I can't, I can't be negotiating price, you know. I had a roof put on last year. Um, I got three prices. I did not get 50,000 prices. Um, it took me four months just to get three prices. You know, if, if I had waited thousands of years to get 50,000 prices, my house would have collapsed before, <laughs> before I'd gotten a new roof. So... Yeah, you wouldn't have a roof. Right, exactly. You wouldn't have a roof at all. I wouldn't all. have a basement. Like, the, the whole thing would have washed away. So, the <laughs> the these middlemen provide this important service of kind of aggregating things together, but they also impose this cost of these bad deals. So, what my system does is it creates a common market that people can participate in, that has two pieces. There's a common negotiation market so that both sides can come together and propose what kind of price evolution or price curve will happen in the future and the system will integrate those into a unified future. And then a common exchange market where people can use these pre-negotiated prices, pay a commission to the system and the negotiators based on sort of how well they did negotiating um, for the use of that price information, but having this safe environment where everybody gets to trade at a common price 
at a much lower cost than than this sort of existing system of roving middlemen just trying to find the very best deals they can out in the world. Okay, I, I get that. Kind of like, uh, you know who my employer is, so like, sort of like what my employer does, uh, whoever facilitates to us, usually it's a distributor that handles the farms and stuff like that. Whatever comes into our stores, because we are one of the world's largest uh, employers, um, it, it, it's kind of like taking that distributor out of the way, getting someone that's a little bit more informed and well versed in the needs of the buyer and seller. Correct? Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The, once that they've got an established price, like you just yeah, you can continue. But yes, the more you narrow the middle, um, the the sort of more money that's available for the productive activities that are on the edge. All right. So my question is, is inside of this, once they have an established method of, of set prices, um, is there a patent or something that's put on these prices or is it just something that can be openly negotiated? Like it's not something that's set in stone once it's like, it doesn't set a precedent, does it? Um, so I'm attempting to patent the mechanism, this mechanism of price discovery. Um, the prices themselves, uh, are public, published information um, for the members of the marketplace. But the key is that using them within the marketplace uh, is, is effectively uh, contained within the marketplace itself. So the, the trading, the, that's the, the other second half, the more people that participate in that marketplace, the more aggregate connections are all happening. So if, if again, you were to try to break out, you were like, oh, okay, I saw that price. I know what I can get. Now I'll go try to sell it. Well, again, you've got the 50,000 person problem where the people that want to buy that are scattered around the country or around the world. And so the marketplace can do that aggregation for you automatically if you hook in and use their system and pay the cost of using their system. Or... If you can manage, uh, you know, a a fifty thousand person contact list and and negotiate all of these things separately themselves, along with the understanding that that price hasn't been negotiated, so it's just a starting point for each of the negotiations. Um, in a small scale, this doesn't really make any sense. If if a marketplace consists of five or six buyers and five or six sellers, sure, everybody can know everybody. They could all get together, you know, on a convention floor someplace and talk it out uh, or just have some phone calls and, and sort of work things out. But as these systems scale up um, and for miners or farmers, or you know, there are hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of, of individuals um, the overhead cost of communication across that, that band that the market would be able to bring together um, dwarfs the cost that the market imposes for the service it's providing. Okay, that makes sense. So that way, uh, a farmer in Wisconsin that has asparagus and one that's in, say, where's another place asparagus can probably grow good? Let's just say upstate New York. Uh, with the market that you have in place, they will end up uh, selling and, and getting the same price 
and getting the same service of any being well connected around the, the, I guess we'll just say the whole nation, you know, inside your service. So let me ask you this. Um, what if there's someone like me, that's someone that's on the outside that sees these businesses and has money that they want to invest in something like this. How do I fit into this, to the scale of things? Like, how do I know, uh, to, to do business with both or to do business with whichever's closest to me? How do I differentiate that inside your market? Um, well, so as an external player, um, your primary role within, within this proposal would be to engage in that negotiation or forecasting market. So if you had some money and some knowledge about the marketplace, you might be able to provide a better picture of where prices were actually headed in the future. Um, this is essentially what the existing sort of middlemen okay. have access to right now. Um, so what this system does is it would allow you to make that prediction within this, this forecasting market and the forecasting market operates as a posi mutual sort of reverse paramutual, like a paramutual with a reverse rake that's getting paid by the other marketplace. Um, and because the, the payoffs are not directly related to uh, sort of compounding interest on the principal, but rather the attractive force of this external marketplace, the return rates within this forecasting market can dwarf the, and, and on average would dwarf the return rates from existing financial markets. Okay. So as long as the forecaster, um, from my understanding, uh, can get the price of, we'll just use, uh, the asparagus and we'll use lettuce. Oh, no, no. Asparagus to whatever uh, the farmers and whoever's using asparagus for dishes and stuff. Uh, as long as I can forecast that price, right? Um, I can, I guess, kind of like set like the market price for things or like. Well, so what, what the degree, system like, does like is like integrates, say, integrates different people's ideas together. So if your ideas are better on average okay. than, than other people's ideas, then as the system integrates that information together, people will cohere towards your beliefs. And so your ideas will have a greater proportion. So again, it's paramutual. So it's sort of a pie situation. The investments go into a pool. Um, that pool is then divided up based on how good the information turned out to be. And how good the information turned out to be is measured by how much trading that information engendered, which then money from that gets piled on top of the pool. So there's more money in the pool than the investors put in. Um, and the people who are the most accurate get the biggest piece. So if you're more accurate than other people, you'll have a bigger piece relative to, to your investment than other people will of this sort of expanding money supply. So you wind up doing very, very well for yourself. Okay. So my next question is a little bit, uh, far left, but, uh, I should have asked this in the very beginning um, with the results and with the predictions um, and just making money off of this and money, keeping it flowing. 
are you basing your system off of a quarterly system or is it a different type of system set in place for results? Well, so the basic notion would be to schedule uh, 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 pricing around your delivery tempo. So the, the speed is dependent upon sort of what rate at which deliveries occur. So for something like an asparagus market, which might be highly seasonal, there might be sort of like five or six delivery periods in a specific season, and then it sort of goes away. Um, for sort of a very non-seasonal market, like say if you were going to run an electrical grid off of this thing, electrical deliveries happen in 15-minute okay. increments. So you would have a 15-minute increment schedule or possibly even shorter than that, maybe a ten or a five-minute increment schedule that that you were <laughs> that you were having pricing for and updating. Um, for for most typical commodities um, uh, that that have you know good keeping properties and so on, like grains or metals uh, or or potatoes, um, you could imagine a daily or weekly pricing regime uh, being fairly ideal. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense there. Now, because like I've looked over the diagrams and everything else, I, I looked them over previously, like everything you're saying, like that's really like revolutionary. Like you, you, you could change the mindset of the economy. So my, my next question, this is more of a structural type question. So um, with this type of stuff, you patent this, these type of ideas and um, how do you keep this thought, or in this whole process, you know, tightly guarded, you, you know, when you're presenting this to uh, people on podcasts or just different TED talks or whatever else you're doing in life, how do you keep this, uh, this, this uh, whole thought process and, and pattern like locked tight that no one can take it from you? Well, I don't actually. Um, I, I have, I'm attempting to get it patented here in the United States, but, um, I'm pursuing an open source strategy overseas uh, and, and getting this thing up and running somehow, some way, somewhere uh, is of tremendous value to me um, just within the context of what it would do for society generally. Um, plus, you know, on, on the selfish axis, uh, there are, currently tens of thousands of economists uh, employed in, you know, very high salary positions around the world today uh, in an economy that is based on systems that none of them invented um, and, in fact, predate the very subject of economics itself. Uh, so if this gets up and running and demonstrates its clear superiority and, and becomes market dominant in market structure, um, I would be, I would be the living inventor of the economics that, that, you know, human beings were using in a, in a world that already has demand on the order of sort of high tens, low hundreds of billions of dollars a year for expertise on that subject. Um, so even 
if this were developed without any reference to myself beyond what's happened so far, um, there's there are many mechanisms by which I can be taken care of in a world that's now operating on these far better principles. Um, but as a practical matter, people I talk to sort of understand the value of having this kind of expertise on board. Um, so it's, it's not a major concern for me. Okay. Okay. Now, Noah Healy, something that we do on this show is we, we do a little role playing, um, role playing comes into play because, you know, um, like I said, you come from the great university of Virginia prestigious all day long. Um, if you present this matter in a Ted talk, what would be the opening statement of your Ted talk? <sighs> I usually prep. And that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. I usually prep those kinds of things for, for six or seven hours before I give them. But, um, I guess something like mankind has been, using the same kind of markets since the Renaissance. And in fact, there's a very reasonable argument to be made that the development of this market technology is what caused the Renaissance. Um, in the last century, and in particularly over the last 50 years, we've developed a completely new kind of technology in computers that affects communication in ways that we never imagined prior to the introduction of the technology itself. And that those new capabilities actually invalidate these markets that we've been using for eight centuries. So we're at a crossroads. We have a choice between sticking with this thing, which we just broke basically by accident um, or adopting a new system and starting a new renaissance. Okay. Okay. I like that. Now you do this Ted talk and this Ted talk cause it took place anywhere. Um, and tying this into agricultural, um, let's say you head down the road to Blacksburg to Virginia tech and you were talking to, uh, some, farmers that are from um, out of that area around Roanoke and different places like that. Um, you talk to on the same side, you've got your farmers here and you have your bakers and you have people that use it, the flour and wheat and stuff in industry. Um, what would be your answer to the baker that wants to buy things for less? Um, well, or in the short term, yeah, in the short term, I'm not entirely certain that this market would actually benefit the buy side directly. I think, I think it, I think the primary benefit in the immediate term goes to the supply side. Um, because if you think about supply and demand as mediated by price, um, if you lower the price, you increase the demand. So if the, if the, if the buyers are getting lower True. prices, then they're going to want to buy more but there's only as much to buy as there is. And supply generally has more of a startup cost than, 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 you know, demand does. So the first thing that has to happen 
is that the demand side prices have to go up. Um, and so it's the farmer that's going to get the lion's share of the, the initial gain. They're going to get higher prices without the baker's prices going up. They're going to want to shift to a system that's offering them these higher prices without the other side. So the bakers sort of get swept along. If you want to keep getting supply, you should migrate over to this system that these other people want to migrate to because that's where they're going to want to sell. They're getting a better deal there. And as that happens, as, as the margins improve for production, that will attract more people into production. Um, we're seeing this right now with the, the wheat shortages that the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is putting on because our system does not push those, those pricing changes through in a prompt manner to the farmers. The response in Canada and the United States has been to not change wheat production at all, in spite of the fact that Ukraine represents something like 8% of global wheat production and their production this year is looking like it's going to be a lot closer to zero than, than any other number. Um, but because the market doesn't actually, you know, those middlemen chew up that, that, that buffer, um, that price ramp doesn't get through to the farmers yet. And so they're not gonna, they're not going to change their behavior until it does. Okay. Now, last part of this role playing, and I thank you for uh, playing along with me with this one. Um, there's a congressional hearing, and it's in D.C. We'll say that's with the House of Representatives, just for argument's sake. And there has been uh, money that's been chartered out to do a study on your process here. And uh, let's say a senator from South Carolina. Um, because on a grander scale of things, like you said, this will work all over the world, United States, wherever. Um, he asked us one simple question. At the end of the day, what do you benefit out of this? So what would you say in that congressional hearing about what you would benefit from this whole matter? Um, so me personally, or uh, like the, what's, what's the you he's referring to? Is he talking about his constituency or? Yeah, constituency, like overall, like, what would be the benefit to you, him, and everyone outside of this? Like, if they were to implement this, you know, try to, because, uh, you know, with doing something like this, there would have to be some type of laws and different things that would enact to make fair trade and make things, you know, not right. all over the board. It would be an FCA, uh, FCC issue at some point, correct? Yeah, so let's just take it to the FCC. FCC asks you, what would be the benefit to everyone um, with using your system and replacing the tried and true barbaric system we have now. <laughs> okay. So according to the U S government figures, uh, the current total cost of the commodity marketplaces in the United States is on the order of, if, th this number is kind of old, so it's gone up since then, but it's $800 billion a year. Um, the American economy is, somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 trillion. Um, uh, I think it might be about $22 trillion. And of course, inflation is going to make that number go up, but it's going to make these other numbers go up too. So, But in round figures, let's let's go with 
20 trillion. Um, so 800 billion, 20 trillion, that's 4%. 4% of the American economy is, is essentially chewed up in, in market cost use. So my system would allow a dramatic reduction in that level. Um, if, if we cut that cost by 75%, then we would essentially shift 3% into the productive economy and the American economy would grow three points more than it would have in any given year. So a bumper crazy five point year turns into an eight point year. A mediocre normal two point year turns into a bumper crazy five point year. A negative one point recession year turns into a mediocre two point year. Um, the, the entire scope and scale of how the economy grows fundamentally changes to at least double what our, our average over the last generation to two generations has been. And that's what's in it for us. Okay. Okay. And I like that. I like that. Now we've done the role plan. Um, comes a point, uh, your system gets put in place and, uh, what's the County? Oh my Lord. Albemarle County decides to put up a statue. Uh, it could be in Charlottesville. It could be in Scottsville. It could be anywhere. And <laughs> it's up to you, Noah Hiley. What is inscribed on the bottom of that statue? Oh my God. I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I take like a you page from, maybe I'd take a page from Gauss or something. And like that little process diagram of, uh, of, of the CDM is on there. Um, I like, I don't think I'm going to do anything that's more important than this in my life. Okay. So, so that'll be outlined there. So it'll sit somewhere, uh, out there and, um, moving over real quick. One thing that we forgot to do inside this show is, um, we do something called the shameless plug and the shameless plug is where you present, um, information where people can find you on social media, um, over on a website, any place that they can find you and connect with you to talk to you more about this, uh, because it's a very interesting topic. Like it, it's mind boggling because I, I have to give you this uh, kind of kind of uh, flowers. Not a lot of people have this much intellect and do this much. You know what I mean? I don't know if you hear that a lot, but um, this is truly something that's remarkable. Yeah, I you know I really I really hope so, um, and and. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I feel I feel like I'm sort of punching above my weight class a little bit. It's we're we're in a period historically <laughs> where there's kind of a lot more low hanging fruit than we expected there to be. Um, so even people who aren't the smartest person in the world can find some of these really cool things. Um, but in terms of shameless plug, um, I'm Noah Healy, uh, N-O-A-H-H-E-A-L-Y on LinkedIn. 
Um, and I've got a website that talks about this called cordisc.com, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C, coordinated discovery, sort of the beginning of those two words. Um, and you can find, uh, uh, video explanations there along with, uh, uh, the white paper and, uh, the, the thing you were talking about, the little process diagram is, is up on the, is up on uh, an explanation section there. So you can find that as well as, uh, uh, contact me through a, through a link there or, uh, just Noah P Healy at yahoo.com. It's my email address. If you want to reach out. Fastest way to reach you. Yep. <laughs> Fastest way to reach you. Now, my son, my son, Landon, he is entering into his freshman year of high school and he is into robotics. He is into a lot of things that are mathematically related. And he wanted me to ask you a few mathematical questions, if you wouldn't mind answering them. And, uh, I will go ahead and ask you the first one. What is the relationship between logical and mathematical truths? So there was some controversy about that in the 20th century, um, but the general consensus today is that there's no difference at all between logical and mathematical truths. Um, to the extent that either of them are capable of producing a coherent uh, a picture, they both produce exactly the same picture. So, um, uh, logic is a tool of mathematics. Mathematics is a tool of logic. Um, they are they are co-branches at this point in in human understanding. Okay. Now, as the next one is a similar question. He wanted to know what is the relation between um, arithmetic and geometry. And um, the last part I'm not going to add in because we talked about it in the pre-call, but I want to leave that part off. <laughs> um, so what is the relation between both of those? Uh, well, probably the <laughs> the strongest example of this relationship is found in the Cartesian plane, which was developed by Rene Descartes, uh, the I think, therefore I am guy, uh, where he showed that by essentially putting down a grid, um, you could have geometric forms perform arithmetic functions and arithmetic functions draw geometric forms. So there's a sort of direct one-to-one -one correspondence that way. Um, the subjects themselves have sort of a, a interesting internal dichotomy. Geometry is the mathematical subject of separable objects. So if you can, in some sense, divide an object into two or more pieces that are each themselves objects by the definition previously used, then you're talking about a geometric system. Arithmetic, on the other hand, is a process of symbolic manipulation. So there are certain rules, functions, for taking certain objects, values, and and transforming uh, those objects, th those values through the functions into other values. Um, there's an interesting question that I have in that regard. Addition and multiplication are are currently believed to be 
of different complexity levels. So addition is very simple. Multiplication is a little bit more complicated. Um, in geometry, this is not true. Using the tools of Euclidean geometry, while it does require a few more steps to perform a multiplication than it does in addition, those steps are not necessarily uh, uh, affected by the magnitudes that are involved the way they are in arithmetic. So if I add two two-digit numbers, I have to do two or three digits worth of work. If I multiply two two-digit numbers, I have to do sort of four or five digits worth of work. Um, and that scales up if I'm dealing with, you know, thousand-digit numbers. Uh, a couple of thousand-digit numbers, I would have to do maybe a thousand digits worth of work to add them. I'd have to do maybe a million digits worth of work to multiply them. And there's some tricks that we can do where I might actually be able to get away with, rather than doing a million digits worth of work, actually only having to do um, sort of uh, 10,000 digits worth of work, but it would still scale up um, uh, faster in, in the case of multiplication than addition. Um, but again, over in geometry, within within the Euclidean plane, I would be able to perform exactly the same operation regardless of scale uh, to multiply rather than divide. And so to me, that opens up an interesting aspect of whether or not there's either some foundationally better way to perform multiplication within geometry, or if the Euclidean plane has some sort of foundational error that we don't really understand yet, um, that that is some sort of contradictory, non-computable piece of Euclideanism that that makes it appear that this would be the case. Okay, and I thank you for that because now you help my son, and he will be able to develop some great skills inside of geometry <laughs> and arithmetic too. But geometry, you made it. You you even made it made me feel more comfortable in geometry. <laughs> So to his last question, is advanced theoretic mathematics important to the average person in this day and age? More than at any time in all of human history. Um, mathematics is the language of science and engineering. And we exist today at a level of technology and technological pervasiveness that far exceeds the imaginations of the wildest fantasists of, of earlier centuries. Um, in the works of like Jules Verne or, or even Isaac Asimov, um, we don't see people wearing computers. <laughs> um, that is a standard fashion statement today. <laughs> uh, the... As, as this technology spreads and becomes a more and more important part of our lives, uh, communicating with it takes up a greater and greater portion of what's important about our existences. And just as the inability to communicate with another person would be a crippling uh, uh, disability, 
and is for the people that, that suffer from it. Um, being unable to communicate with this technology essentially renders you a child um, in, in the environment that presently exists and very much the environment that is rapidly, you know, building up around us. Um, and so, uh, without, without a better appreciation and understanding of these topics, um, we, we will render ourselves, uh, you know, a nation of children. And I, I can't, I can't have a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of optimism about that prospect. <laughs> okay. And um, lastly, this is a question just for me personally that I just thought about. Because um, this is something that happened when I was in school. I graduated in 2004. But um, early on in the mid-90s, they started teaching us coding, you know, on the 7th and 8th grade level. Uh, we learned Python and different things like that. Um and, and I know that's, that's computer related stuff. Um, but it has mathematical equations and when, when you're writing it, um, what is your thought on coding and excelling mathematics in the public school sector? Uh, for the reasons I just delineated, I think it's, it's very valuable and very important. Um, the, the, the mathematical, you know, curriculum that existed when I was coming up, uh, through school was essentially a hangover of the space race. Um, when Sputnik went up, uh, America's intelligentsia and, and political class basically freaked out um, because what, what was being demonstrated by the Soviets was intercontinental missile capacity. If you could put something in a permanent orbit, then obviously you could drop a nuclear bomb anywhere on earth. Um, and so in an environment where very expensive airplane fleets were being maintained, you know, in sort of standoff zones in order to be able to deliver atomic warfare, um, the idea that deep within your own country's borders, you could have something that could strike out against other continents um, was, was, you know, very destabilizing. And so, uh, the Eisenhower and then Kennedy administrations um, basically put together the space race as this sort of national crash emergency, you know, catch up thing to, to get the, get the tug of war back into place. Um, and a part of that was like, why are these kids so dumb that they didn't know how to, you know, build intercontinental ballistic missiles before we asked them to do it. So the, the German rocket scientists that we were using basically put together a proposal of how to train people to become rocket scientists. And it was, you know, arithmetic, algebra, geometry, more algebra, calculus, rocket science. Um, and so that kind of basic progression turns people into rocket scientists. But while those are all good subjects in their own right, um, and all have wide and general applicability. There are many, many more branches of mathematics, um, computational mathematics and coding, statistics, uh, machine learning, uh, which sort of bridges the gap between uh, statistics and, uh, uh, and coding does, 
Um, within geometries, there's other kinds of, of geometries as well, um, and other kinds of algebras as well. So that there's there are so many important branches of mathematics. Uh, I don't really understand how a curriculum to form a sufficient grounding to be sort of vaguely competent could exist, but much broader exposure, I think, is, is pretty important um, because what we're seeing is the math is, is making discoveries about systems that we're using um, that invalidate those systems. And the people who are experts in those systems have no awareness of this mathematics that's doing this. And so they're basically just turning the crank on, on something that's broken. And, you know, like when the machine starts rattling because the gears have gnashed and are, you know, breaking themselves to pieces, uh, they just kind of like turn up their iPods so they can't hear it and, and crank harder. So, um, uh, <laughs> any solutions that are forthcoming <laughs> are going to have to come from a position of reality. And, and because math is the language of reality, um, we're going to need greater knowledge and, and broader knowledge of that subject in order to engage with reality to find those solutions. Okay. And I thank you for that. Cause I definitely wanted that presented out there to the world. So people in general, the youth, please go to school, learn mathematics, uh, take time with mathematics. Don't treat it like you do, PE or anything else, like you breeze through it, or you just meteorically get by with doing the meager amount of math that you have to do. Well, to graduate. A, a terrific aspect of the modern world is that um, online resources exist, many of which are quite engaging. Um, but even without them, the, the the fundamental and important papers of mathematics, several of which are are actually interesting and engaging within themselves to read are free online. Um, so, so sure, pay attention in school, but do not limit yourself to, to sort of the frame of what your teacher presents as, as the end of, of understanding. If, if you're bored with, with like, you know, adding one digit numbers together, um, get online and, and watch some YouTube videos or read some papers about, about what else is out there. Um, Okay, definitely agree with that. And uh, once again, this is JR from West Virginia Commonplace, and I have Noah Healy with me. Um, and he has presented a lot of information. Um, he talked about his world renowned, because it will be world renowned, coordinated discovery market. Um, one last time, Noah, could you please tell everybody where they can meet and greet you? And um, the lasting message that I want you to put out there is that coordinated discovery market it's going to be a thing that's going to happen and it will revolutionize our economy. Excellent. Yes. Um, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Noah Healy, N-O-A-H-H-E-A-L-Y, or you can 
stick a P in the middle there and send it to yahoo.com for my email or go to my website at uh, coredisc.com.